Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 22 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. We are back once again, how and I that is, and we are here to talk about JD Power releases their latest study on investor satisfaction. Some interesting uh, news in the in the on that. Um, the rally in the first quarter has been led by only a handful of stocks. Starting today, if you're in the market for an electric vehicle, you are limited to only six options. And Apple launches a high yield savings account. So action packed for today, as always. Let's dive in. So this JD Power study that came out, how what what do you make of it? And I've got a couple of comments here as well. But uh, this this is a study just for everybody's knowledge. So it's it's on investor satisfaction with full service financial advisors, and uh, they had some interesting findings. How what's your take? Yeah, their their results from twenty twenty two came in uh, significantly lower. So there's like a marked drop from satisfaction being. I think their metric was 290. It dropped to 270. Again, I don't know why they use the scale from. I don't know what their scale is, but zero to 100 seems to make the most sense. They don't use it here, but um, I, I guess the level of drop is notable because uh, the big biggest thing cited was um, performance, which to me uh, it says one of two things, right? The, the expectation of the advisor. Uh, too many clients think, at least the clients in the survey, think that the advisor can beat in a down market or stay positive in a down market. Not not lose money in a down yeah. market. Yeah. Yeah. We just remind everyone we had one of those weird years where stocks and bonds went down. So like mm-hmm. it was a true bear market where everything sold off. And for client client survey participants to say that this wasn't what they expected of the advisor, uh one, their expectation of advisors and what they can or cannot do is uh, probably misplaced, and mm-hmm. or and or probably is their advisors are leading them on a little too much, where they're they're over promising and under delivering here. I think what's interesting there is it, it's probably the advisor that's setting up that situation, and there's an ongoing movement in our industry that is moving away from more stock picking and, and performance setting and moving towards financial planning and, and comprehensive financial planning. And I think the word comprehensive is, is subjective in and of itself. But um, the most alarming stat that jumped out at me in this study is only a small fraction of advisors are currently offering what J.D. Power calls comprehensive advice. And comprehensive advice to them is defined by uh, personalized guidance from that advisor that addresses all financial and wealth management needs, demonstrates an, int- an intimate understanding of the client's lifestyle and goals, puts the client's best interest first, includes a financial plan, ding, ding, ding. That's a spoiler for later. <laughs> and ensures clients understand the fees they pay and is an integral part of the client's life. Today, just 11% of advisors are delivering this level of advice. 
They went on to say that the rest are delivering transactional advice. That's 42% and uh, 47% goals-based advice. I was alarmed to read that. 11% of advisors are doing, frankly, what we do for our clients. And I, I was just alarmed that that's not more common. Yeah, we, we've mentioned uh, the plan dictating the investments or the plan, you know, making the investment decisions. Um, mm -hmm. We kind of say that in, uh, we're taking it for granted. Uh, that's just because uh, we live and breathe this stuff. Uh, I, I was shocked by the numbers here too, how little... Uh, financial advisors or how few of them really take that approach and they're looking to sell the next mutual fund or next um, product that gives them a commission. Product, yeah. yeah, that's a mm -hmm. 42% delivering transactional. A transactional is just a dressed up word for commission-based broker. And I think it's part of the industry shifting from an old way of doing business, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I know advisors who've been in business since the early 90s and all you had were brokerage type of advisors giving that kind of advice. It was like, you should buy and sell this for right. 1% to 2% commission. And the more you trade, the more money goes into that advisor's pocket. Thankfully, that has faded away. But I thought it was, honestly, thought it was going to be a lot faster than what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. To see 42% still transacting that way is just mind-boggling. 47% goals-based advice, that's not terrible to me. No. So, yeah. I mean, hey, look, if you're trying to help somebody get to a goal, that is that is often how our relationships seem to start. Somebody has a problem, you know, we can help them achieve that or, or fix that problem uh, and, and outline some goals. But then it, it, it seems to evolve to a very, very comprehensive relationship that involves, you know, hey, I'm buying and selling a house, what do I do? Uh, yeah. I'm considering a job change, what do you think? Um, you know, we're going to move states. What's the impact on my plan and my tax situation? I mean, there's so many different things that we might dive into, um, changing the plan when there's a holiday, you know, tax holiday year due to a job change and that's lower income or higher income. Yeah. I mean, it, it, everything changes. So I think oftentimes it starts with a goal in mind and then it evolves to, you know, possibly what that 11% of advisors are actually delivering. Yeah. And I think the dirty secret of the industry, it is old, it's aging. Um, in terms of our side of the table where hashing out advice is is surprisingly new to a lot of people, mm -hmm. which uh, I, I honestly thought we would see numbers in the 80s and 90s for comprehensive advice because what are, what are most people paying for? In my mind, I think they're overpaying if they're not getting comprehensive. I, it just it doesn't make sense to me. And, and here you go. So the second part of this that was alarming to me, just more than half of, quote, full service wealth clients even have a financial plan. I don't know what they have if they don't have a financial plan. Yeah. So if you what have you somebody for? that you're, yeah. I guess they have an investment plan, which is not a financial plan. Uh, we, to your point, we, you know, we say investments are, are often, or we often say investments are a servant to the plan, not the other way around. Uh, this is 57% of respondents here say that they have a financial plan, yet only 56% of clients with plans say they are receiving comprehensive advice. So I think uh, oftentimes advisors might be plugging in a simple, hey, you're going to retire with this spend, with this savings, and by this age, and it spits out a number. And that's also not a financial plan. That is a, that is a basic project projection that you can run online. Um, 
goes on and, and, and final point here, it says among clients with financial plans, 32% do not feel that their advisor makes recommendations in the, in their best interest. I don't know why those 32% are still working with that person. Maybe that's a whole nother thing. And 29% say that they do not feel their advisor understands their financial goals and needs. Holy crap. We can do better <laughs> as an industry. Yeah. The, the fact that, that it's, it's above double digits, but to, to be a third of all advisors is still very troubling. So I think the moral of the story here is that if you are one of those people who's listening to this podcast, who does not feel like your advisor is understanding you, or you are merely meeting quarterly in a rear view mirror approach that is purely centered around what return you earned against something that, um, you know, is either positive or negative, eh, maybe call us. Maybe we'd have a different approach that can help align yeah. what you're trying to accomplish. I think the rear view mirror is going to be a outcome. prominent theme in this episode. Episode 22, April 18th. Thank you. Timestamp. 12 noon Pacific. So about Thanks for that. Hour left. All right. Market. Moving on. So we closed out the first quarter and stocks were up. And you pulled an interesting piece of data here for the deck that says that seven companies contributed to most of the positive return in the S&P for Q1. So... Please enlighten us with your data. Yeah, let's first start with the big one. That's seven and a half percent up in three months through March thirty first is pretty let's just hold. Just hold. Just close the markets yeah. for the rest of the year. Yeah. Imagine a seven percent return. You don't need again, we're not saying go to cash. <laughs> um, but they come these these times come in unexpectedly. And we've been saying that for since episode one, I think. Right? Mm -hmm. So twenty two episodes in. We've been consistent with saying, hey, get invested, stay invested. And I think this is a good example of holding losers, right? So the seven tech stocks contributed to 83% of that 7.5% return. So we, we removed these seven stocks. So I'll give you them. Again, just don't take this as an investment advice because this is rearview mirror type of investing if you're buying recent winners. Right, because what what invariably happens? They 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 sell off as soon as you buy them, right? You right. got to buy low, sell high. It's not the other way around. Uh, so if we remove the seven winners, uh, the S and P would only be up one point three percent, right? That's a eighty three percent difference if I did my math right, or I'm reading the, at least reading the headline right. So if we took out Apple, Microsoft, Nvidia, Tesla, Meta, Alphabet, Google. In Amazon, right? They made up six point two percent of that seven point five percent return year to date. So, wow. so they outpaced everyone. Tesla, we've we've talked about them, them lowering their car prices. How we're not fans of that. Um, I think five to five times, six times. Yeah, now. Meta. Yeah, Meta being under increased pressure from TikTok and regulators. Amazon uh, running through most likely a retail slowdown, um, an AWS slowdown, Google, very heavy ad industry, and lots of companies are cutting ad spending, right? NVIDIA, graphics chips, more discretionary spending, but with AI push, NVIDIA has been very important for that. Microsoft, um, another AI, you know, AI uh 
momentum rider, I guess. I'm trying to think of the word, but can't, it doesn't come to me. And Apple, with probably the biggest outsized performance relative to market cap, right? Apple is still by far the biggest company in the world. And mm -hmm. if they're up 26%, the market moves, like, in big these ways. Are some, these are some amazing numbers here. I'm just looking at this. I wish everybody could see, those of you listening, we have this really awesome sort of like weighted chart. So, you know, Apple's the largest square and Microsoft's the second largest square. And then you have like John Deere is a smaller square and Bank of America is a smaller square, et cetera. And so you can see the the contributions because the S&P, for those that don't know, is what's called a market cap weighted index, which means the bigger the company, the bigger the weight in the index. So a company like Apple, if Apple moves up 1%, a company like say Johnson & Johnson also moving up 1% doesn't have the same impact on the market. Johnson & Johnson, you need like seven Johnson & Johnsons or six Johnson & Johnsons to weight the same as Apple. Um, and so that of course adjusts daily as companies go up and down in, in size. Here's what's crazy about this. Your winner in the seven that you called out, your winner was NVIDIA, 84% return in Q1. Yeah. Uh, Meta was up 75%, Tesla was up 50%, Amazon up 20%. Apple 26, Google and Microsoft, both about 18% up. I mean, that's just wild. Yeah. And I think a lot of traders were looking for previous winners, right? A lot of people were towards the end of 2022 were picking up energy stocks, mm -hmm. um, inflation sensitive stocks, at least in the, the sense that they do well when inflation goes up. Um, no one was really looking at these growth stocks, especially big tech. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at here too. Visa was up about 10% in the, in the first quarter. When you look at these, so these, these seven stocks that have jumped a lot in Q1, those are a lot of the stocks that were down a lot yep. last year, particularly like Meta, NVIDIA was down a good amount. Tesla was down a lot. When you look at Visa, Visa had a pretty good year last year, actually. And so... It, it, this is not saying that these companies that are already up 25 to 75% this year are going to just keep going. Um, if you were to look at a longer term chart, I guess you're not surprised I'm talking about diversification here again, but Visa's done pretty well as a, a, a one standout or call out example yeah. when I'm just looking at this chart here. Well, diversification works if you held these big tech companies that did so poorly last year, which Amazon especially Tesla were very hard to hang on to, mm -hmm. right? Well, any stock that goes down is hard to hang on to. And that's why we preach this because we didn't, we didn't call this. Who saw this coming? You have a point here as well. And this is commenting on active investors changing around their positions. So, you know, changing, trimming in big tech, moving towards energy, moving towards banks, stuff like that. Um, it, it kind of speaks to why that, that form of active management doesn't necessarily work. You're kind of skating to where the puck already was, but maybe you can comment on, on this post here. Yeah. Yeah. The quote is, uh, this is pulled from the wall street journal. Sorry if I don't have the, the byline here, but for many active investors trimming their positions in big tech stocks in favor of financial and energy stocks backfired, right? Um, the logic was adding to banks and again we were ascribing to this too adding to banks in a rising rate environment made sense because banks suddenly got yield in return for their loans and things like that sure um, yeah. makes a lot of sense especially when banks 
have constantly been published or publicized as never being healthier, right? With all the stimulus coming in, banks, I don't know, banks looked like the bulletproof investment, mm -hmm. right? Uh, energy, when when oil was trading at $120 a gallon, it, everyone thought it was going to hit 150 I wrote about this, like the expectation of hitting 150 wouldn't have surprised anyone. It would have made a lot of angry people, but they probably still would have accepted $150 a barrel. And for most of this year, it was $70 a barrel, right? So you got expectations, and those expectations actually, in reality, cut in half. It wasn't until OPEC uh, really constricted supply production to where we're at $80 a barrel. So even mm -hmm. with the massive cut, oil is not rebounding that, like everyone expected towards the last year. And the other value type of plays that did well in 2022, they're lagging. They're up maybe 1% on the year. The NASDAQ was up as of that quarter, what, up 22%? So, yeah. And the NASDAQ last year was down 30%. And again, we weren't screaming to buy the NASDAQ, but we were always saying buy, buy low. Getting that timing right is impossible. That's why we always preach the holding winners and losers at the same time and just rebalancing within that pool. And here, here's the point too. I know that a lot of the big big banks came out and they said, go more oil. I know specifically <laughs> the, the bank with the logo that is a horse and carriage that will go unnamed specifically said, buy more oil stocks. These stocks are great. And uh, they were already up 60% last year, I believe. Yeah. That is totally a momentum trade, and now clearly they are not doing as well this year. That's short term, but still, buying something that's already up 60% is maybe not the greatest recommendation. Those things should be then trimmed and, and reallocated towards the things that hadn't done as well. That's how institutional investors would invest, which actually would have then sold some of the oil positions because they had done so well, likely bought some tech positions because they had done so poorly, and now look at what what that had done. So I'm just describing a simple rebalance. Yeah. It's not like active management yeah. or fancy special stuff here. That's just a simple logical rebalance. Yeah, and uh, let me go back and describe a headline-based rebalance, right? So Chris Chris is right. A lot of pundits and a lot of smart money, I use air quotes, said buy more oil and energy. And this was, what, $110 a barrel. They, they were thinking that the, the trend, they make a... They still make the same mistakes retail investors do where they think uh, a trend will continue in perpetuity, right? The trend is your friend. Yeah, that's one one of the biggest mistakes. No one was saying buy tech stocks in October. We all know the market doubled or double bottomed in October, right? I know Chris mm -hmm. and I have egg on our faces in July, but the bottom in October was very similar to July. And those are the oh, opportunities. Yeah, we did call the bottom. Yeah, to sh shift. <laughs> yeah. But... You, the point I'm making is we, we get a lot of research from very smart people. None of them have said buy the NASDAQ at the end of the last year. And if you didn't or you didn't have any exposures to that, you would be most likely lagging the S&P by 6 7% if you were all value. And how do you recover mm -hmm. from that? Let's say, let's say tech does pull back. 
right? This is it might be an opportunity to rebalance now, but if text pulls back to the 2022 lows, what would we have to experience in our real economy for that to happen? What would be the catalyst? Mm-hmm. Inflation is coming down. Earnings might be the issue, but we still mm-hmm. have um, relatively high premiums that we're paying for these tech stocks that have obviously jumped up since the beginning of the year. But how many of these recent buyers are willing to shed their shares for it to crash? That's like a good it, point. That's, that's a big if. And again, invest it like as, as if you don't know because no one knows. I think Q2 will be interesting and uh, earnings, we're in the middle of earnings season. Um, yeah. I'm going to switch over to EVs because that's in the news here recently. But Tesla earnings, I believe, is is this week. And with, I want to say, five price cuts and slowing sales internationally, be interesting to see what they come out with. So, you know, ho- hopefully if we can slow and then speed back up, maybe we can get through this rolling six months. So oh, there's a recession in six months. There's a recession in six months, <laughs> yeah. right? Maybe we can either get there or, or, or finally just push it out further. Um, but, but earnings now I think will be pretty telling and, and the second quarter will be, will be telling for how companies are doing. Yeah. And if we get a recession, it might be the most obvious one, but at this point, I don't think the stock market even cares. If we do get a recession officially, I, we might see a rally. Which is one of the weirdest I've things I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the market might say, "Hey, we're closer to the end of the tunnel than we, yeah. you know, n- now it's one step closer." The certainty Great. is there. We've already exactly. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, that means that consumer spending will return in the next six to twelve months, so we can price that in. I mean, it's the, yeah. This is this is definitely a strange market to predict. So uh, I guess our advice is don't try to predict it. Yeah. All right, moving on to EV credits. Starting today, tax day, only six EVs will qualify for the $7,500 federal credit. And uh, there are are also some income qualifications on this. So for married filing jointly, your adjusted gross income has to be $300,000 or below. For heads of households, two hundred twenty-five thousand, and for everybody else, one hundred and fifty thousand or below. So, with that said, though the list is shrinking because part of the Inflation Reduction Act said that over time, the list of qualifications to get the federal credit gets more strict. And essentially, what's happening there is uh, the federal government is trying to incentivize companies to source their battery technology outside of China. And so now we have just six EVs that will qualify. If you're in the market for a Cadillac Lyric, which I haven't seen yet, but I keep getting ads for. So um, I think I keep getting ads that they're sold out too. So maybe that's good news. Anyway, Cadillac Lyric, Chevy Bolt, the Chevy Bolt EUV, must be a different version, some Tesla Model 3s, some Tesla Model Ys, and the Ford F-150 Lightning. Everybody else? is looking to move their or lose their credits. The Nissan Leaf will lose it. The Volkswagen ID4 will lose it. And all of this is because they source battery tech from China. Three other vehicles will qualify for half the credit. And those are uh, Ford, Lincoln, Chrysler, Jeep. So some of these other ones um, are the plug-in hybrids and you can get half the credits for that. Uh, if you're curious on the full list, just throw that into Google. This is all over the news right now. So if you're in the market for a car and you would fit the qualifications, 
definitely Google before you move forward. Yeah, I think uh, two of the big ones on that list were the are the Tesla. They still by far the most. So I think. I think if the push was to get brought out EV adoption, I don't know if this is really convincing with the amount of restrictions. But at the same time, yeah, we want to onshore a lot of the production too. So it's kind of like this catch twenty two. You know, it's also worth noting. So the other stipulation here, outside of well, the multiple stipulations, but there's the income cap, there's the battery tech issue or or sourcing qualification. And then there's also the price of the car. And so for a van or an SUV or a pickup, $80,000 is the capped MSRP. And for everything else, it's 55,000. And so that is likely why you've seen Tesla lower prices, because they're trying to get those Model Ys under that threshold. Um, just a baseline Model Y, maybe with one upgrade could get you there. Um, but even just a few short months ago, you'd easily spend over $80,000 on a Model Y, and then none of them are gonna qualify. So that's why the Model Y and the Model 3 from Tesla qualify, but the X and the uh, Model S do not. So interesting to see how this will play out. All right, in other news, Apple launches a high-yield savings account with 4.15%. There's a bunch of stipulations here. How, I guess my question for you is, why is Apple getting into the banking business? They launched the Apple Card in partnership with Goldman Sachs a, a, a while ago. Goldman apparently lo is losing a ton of money on it. Uh, they're also doing this with Goldman Sachs. What are they trying to get at here? What's the goal? I, from my point of view, I think it is to, one, build a deposit base, which we've all seen the folly in that, um, especially with the attractive 4.15% savings rate i think yeah. i think wanting to reach the consumer with going back to apple pay in the convenience of that i think they've always wanted to venture into that space but with marcus goldman ironically or or unironically that might have been why they were so quick to ditch marcus and then go mm -hmm. to in this this dual partnership because money the money business isn't very profitable if that sounds really weird but the deposits as everyone is so painfully aware of is is such a big liability and i don't know why they would really want to get into this further but i think apple's strategy has always been vertical upstream right they they just want to be point a to point z for all all things apple universe or apple bubble Right, they want to create everything, and they want to be the, the the end product for everything. And then, I think, falling into the Apple universe, I I think it, it I think that's their strategy. I really can't pin why they would want to jump into this. I can see why they want to get into payments, and they are, you know, with Apple Pay and these types of things. Um, yeah, I just don't see why they want to get into banking. I mean, okay, if they release an Apple Car, maybe they want to earn some some you know, percentages on, on financing, but then you've got risk there, you know, I don't know. And, you know, there's definitely reasons why, why companies don't want to own banks because banks are subject to significant regulation and, you know, is a giant tech company. Do they really want to deal with that? I think it's interesting. There are some stipulations with this account as well. Yeah, no fees, that kind of thing. Uh, there's a maximum amount of money you can transfer in, uh, I believe it's $20,000 on a daily basis. 
And also, these accounts are capped at 250000 I bet that was a last-minute... <laughs> that was a last-minute qualification. Yeah. 250 is the max FDIC-insured amount. I'm sure they threw that in there just, just because. If there's an explicit guarantee, I would expect those limits to magically fade away, too. Yeah. Because, yeah, you don't want to yeah. deal with uninsured depositors right now. Yeah, and how much of this lands on Apple, how much of this lands on Goldman. I mean, I think it's just Apple's brand and Goldman's backing. But 4.15% eh, is is good. It, it's not that much better than other other accounts. I, mean, I think Amex High Yield is 3.75 right now. I think Marcus, if you can still get it, I've seen them advertised recently, but I think they're like 3.9. And there's some other ones that are slightly higher. So I don't know if that 4.15 is good enough Especially to really caps. pull people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially that's a good point. Especially capped at 250. Yeah. So I don't know. Is that enough to get you to switch to an iPhone, Hal, or are you still stuck in Droid land? Yes, yeah, still, still Android, uh, still Samsung, whatever, Galaxy, whatever. Um, we just upgraded because my wife broke her phone last year. So uh, typically we upgrade every four years. But the whole ecosystem, you have to change everything. So all of our chargers are 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 what the USB C or mm -hmm. the the Lightning Fast or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Shows you how techy I am. I just, I don't know. I, we used to have Apple, but the luster of it doesn't really appeal to us anymore. All right. Well, I'll keep trying. <laughs> so, I, you know, your green text messages just they they drive me nuts. So I'll keep trying. Yeah, tell that I'll to my trying. friends too. They they hate it. You're the only one. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Last piece of news. Ryan Reynolds is crushing it right now. Ryan Reynolds has been in the news for selling his uh, cell phone business Mint Mobile to T-Mobile for a lot of money. It was like $1.3 billion. No one knows how much of that he owned, but he owned a, a decent a decent clip of that. And then before that, he sold Aviation Gin. He only owned that company for a couple of years, but he, he was able to broker that deal. And uh, he's reinvesting now. So he just made an investment into a Canadian fintech company called Nuve. And they're a, they're a payments company. So uh, anyway, just kind of interesting. Nothing, nothing notable here, but it's just, uh, uh, I think, interesting to see how uh, a Hollywood people reinvest their money. And then um, he's been in the news a lot for, I guess, buying the right things. Yeah. yeah, well, it could be another component of reporting on the good good stuff. So if you're telling your friends about your trades, you're, are you telling them about the losers at the barbecue party or telling them about the winners, right? Um, maybe yeah, that's, that's all we're point. hearing. <laughs> let's, well, let's, let's hope for our mirror, us mere mortals that uh, Ronald Reynolds isn't fully impenetrable. But yeah, it's a lot of wins. Big string of wins, too. You're telling me that if I buy a gin company, I'm not guaranteed to make money? No. Yeah. Well, unless you have yeah. celebrity backing, which seems to be the only successful. <laughs> That's true. Successful cases. So I'll, yeah. I'll park that. I'll park that for a while then. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you got a gin, gin, so, which I don't think none of us do, so. But all right, that is all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for everybody that's tuning in. If you have a question, please send it to team at conciliowealth.com and we will answer it on our next episode. Take care, everyone.